Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 15th, 2020. Our headlines, unfortunately, are full of evil. The Russians... Um, have invaded Ukraine. Uh, Putin is clearly an evil man, and some of the people supporting him are also uh, evil. Three million people have fled Ukraine, um, including many children. Uh, uh, Putin has unleashed one of his more evil lieutenants on this war, the Chechen leader Kedrov. Uh, the, this, this was in the headlines today on Reuters. Um, and apparently this Chechen leader is plotting to kidnap uh, Ukrainian children. So the evil is getting even more evil. One wonders if he might even be considering unleashing his so-called night wolves. Uh, this is a motorcycle club, a Russian motorcycle club that follows Putin and is reputed to be particularly uh, evil. Uh, no doubt some of these characters are involved in the invasion of Ukraine. One man who knows a lot about evil when it comes to motorcycle gangs, although I don't think he knows much about Ukraine or Putin, is my guest today on the show. Um, Ken Croak uh, is the author of Riding with Evil, Taking Down the Notorious Pagan uh, Motorcycle Gang. Uh, Ken is a um, a legendary undercover ATF figure who uh, is literally taking on um, evil in America. Uh, and I'm thrilled that Ken is joining us from somewhere in America, somewhere on the West Coast. He doesn't want to reveal any more than that. Ken, um, in all seriousness, what is it about motorcycles that seems to bring out many of our worst qualities, particularly when it comes to men with beards? Not that, of course, that I'm accusing you of being evil. <laughs> no offense taken. I, you know, I think I think the motorcycle just gets spotlighted. Um, to be honest with you, you know, the, there's a term one percenter um, that's you know it's mentioned in the book, and it's a, it's an accepted term. Um, and and where it came from is that only one percent of motorcycle enthusiasts are actually outlaw motorcycle gang members. The other 99% are out there just riding on the weekends, riding with their friends, you know, some are in clubs, but clubs that are doing good charity work and so forth. So it is that 1% that are out there, but they're oftentimes the most visible and certainly the, the loudest and they, they get seen more than I think the others. So this book, Ken, is, is really amazing. I mean, you went undercover, you left your, your family, your young children. Uh, you literally rode with evil. You took down the notorious pagan motorcycle gang. And here we have some pictures of you uh, with some of these gang figures. Uh, tell me the story of, of, of how you did it and, and what you actually accomplished in this undercover operation. Sure. It's, um, it, you know, when it started, it never really, it, the intention wasn't for it to be a long-term undercover investigation. And it certainly was not intended that I would be the long-term. Um, you know, a person had come forward with some information about a different gang, uh, the Devil's Disciples, that were located up in Massachusetts, and that this person had some information on the gang and, and possibly was able to introduce uh, an undercover agent. And um, so I had done a fair amount of biker um, investigation, investigative work on the West Coast. 
And so when um, when this information came in, they knew that, hey, you know, let, let's vet this through, Ken. And um, let's see a, if it makes sense. And then um, B, like what, what would be possible next steps? So we sat with this uh, person. We, we ran him through a polygraph and passed. And, um, you know, from there, um, it was determined, okay, well, uh, you know, I'll at least go with him and create a, a bit of a backstory and just see, you know, who he was talking about, who he was talking to. Um, but the first step was to really um, make sure that he and his family. So in other words, if, if I was going to know this individual and I was supposedly friends with this individual, then his family would have to know who I am. And, and at the time, his family only consisted of a wife. So I want to meet with his wife to make sure that she would stand up and and that um, that wouldn't compromise um, the investigation and the meetings. So so did that. And, and actually, she she was great. And um, and then happened to have a, a chance encounter with one of the devil's disciples. And um, and the devil's disciples are different from uh, sorry, they're different from um, the Pagans Motorcycle Club. There are a number of these organizations of course we think of the hell's angels i've heard of the hell's angels i've never actually heard of the pagans motorcycle club who actually names these organizations they name themselves and in, in most of the big clubs um you know the pagans are generally considered to be the most violent of the big clubs um and they've been around in, since the 50s um and a lot of the bigger clubs have been around for a very very long time um but yeah they're internally uh, named and is Wikipedia accurate in terms of their analysis of the pagans? According to Wikipedia, approximately 1,300 members, 100 uh, chapters, and that they're heavily involved in criminal activities, Florida, New Jersey, New York, Philadelphia, very much up and down the East Coast. It, it is accurate, but it, it is changing. Um, the, the pagans are actually expanded. They're in the West Coast and other areas as well. So you know, in Wikipedia's defense, you know, it, it changes like literally by the day, you know, they'll expand or they'll have a chapter closed because law enforcement has arrested a bunch of the members. Um, so it is, it is constantly in there. Do, do they have a business model, um, Ken? Are they in the business? Are they essentially a, a sort of a, a motorcycle version of the mafia? They do have a model and they do have a structure. Um, they have a, a hierarchy that leads them. The mother club is, is what they refer to it as. In theory, it has 13 members and that oversees the, the national organization of the pagans. And then that national organization is made up of many chapters. And each chapter will have a president and they'll have a sergeant of arms, which acts as like the number two in that chapter. So you, you went undercover as, a, as an ATF officer how much of this had you done before as an undercover operator? It requires enormous bravery as well as, I assume, theatrical skills. Um, so over the course of my career, I, I participated in more than a thousand undercover operations. So a big part of my career um, was spent doing undercover work. But, you know, a lot of undercover work is not two year assignments. A lot of undercover work, maybe one day, one week, one month. Um, and, and with all different objectives and goals set out at the beginning of those investigations. So why was this one the the mother, if you like, of all undercover operations? Was um, was the ATF were they were they geared towards blowing up, so to speak, the pagan motorcycle club? Was this uh, the goal of of many of the the senior people in the ATF? 
So I think two, two things on that. One, I think um, ATF is probably um, the most focused on um, a lot of motorcycle gangs, but also long-term undercover investigations. Um, there's not a lot of agencies that, that really get into that type of work, number one. Number two, is these investigations, like most investigations, they don't start, when they start, it's more of exploratory. It's like, okay, what what's the avenues into this group what is this group doing and what's the ability to make contact with the folks who are actually doing the illegal activity and so you can have the best laid out plan saying i'm going to go get the national president this is you know i'm going to go meet a bunch of people and i'm going to get to them and day one something may happen that stops the entire investigation Either you get compromised or you have to stop something from happening you have to come out of role so there's really no long-term plan other than to start and kind of see where it goes and then see what the activity is and then ultimately see how far you can go. And I could give you a half dozen incidents that if they had turned one way or another, this could have been a three-day investigation. As opposed right. To and it could have been a three-day investigation and you wouldn't be here talking about it. It's a very chilling book. Um, Ken, what was the scariest moment of all in this undercover operation for you? When did you feel that uh, this might be it for you? You know, there, there are probably several times and you, and you tend not to harp on it when you're doing it. I've reflected back and have often thought like, what about this or what about that? And, um, you know, because there was a lot of different factors. There was the risk of the motorcycle. You know, you're on the motorcycle all the time. You're traveling 100 miles an hour. You're riding in, in a pack, um, two feet off the person in front of you, riding the gear down. So that that's dangerous enough. And then you have the rival gang members and particularly the Hells Angels and, and the Pagans are mortal enemies. And, and you could see in, in through the book how those events unfold and getting caught up in the, in the middle of that. Um, and then, you, of course, you have the, the risk of being outed or somebody figuring out who you are without you realizing it and then them trying to take care of um, that threat of that problem. Would you like, Ken, for people to read this book as a morality tale or as a thriller or as both? Um. I'll give you, I'd say all three, uh, those two. And I'm going to give you one more. Um, you know, the, I go around, I speak to a lot of different law enforcement groups about the work in, in how that work unfolded. And there's a reason why, and that's to encourage others to do this type of work, because it is one of the few ways that you can get to the upper echelon of these organizations. You can't really do it from the outside. You have to get inside. And there is a huge commitment and risk to it. And, um, a lot of agencies, as I mentioned before, stay away from it. Um, but the other two that you described are also, you know, reasons, you know, I, they just wanted the story told so people understand, you know, what's involved in these types of investigations. Ken, how critical do you think? I mean, obviously, from an ATF point of view, it's important. But in comparison, say, with Ukraine or some other highly visible event in the world today, taking down the Pagan Motorcycle Club uh, doesn't seem that important did you save people's lives in this investigation how much how much has the world apart i mean obviously these motorcycle gangs fight each other uh but how much better off is the world without the pagan motorcycle gang or the hell's angels or these other criminal motorbike groups i i would put it into any uh, look at any large organized uh crime organization and what's their effect and what's their reach and I guess it would depend on, on where you are. So if you're in a remote mountaintop and going back to the days when the mafia were at their strength, it probably wouldn't have been that big of an effect to you, right? You're up in this mountaintop. How, how's the mafia affecting you there? However, if you live in the neighborhoods 
um, or the areas where these outlaw groups exist and operate, there's a huge effect. Um, and there's also the right and wrong. You know, the, these, you know, during the course of this investigation, there was, you know, people say, oh, biker gangs only hurt each other. That's 100% not true. And there's numerous incidents in this book where folks outside the gang were, um, were affected by the actions of these um, outlaws. So, you know, I guess it would all be relative to where you are and what your interaction is. And if, you know, if, if there's a chapter or a clubhouse in your neighborhood or in your city or town, then it's a huge effect. Um, and until you're in an environment where you run into this group, uh, you know, a group of these individuals and how they control that environment and the fact that you don't really have a vote in that, you can't appreciate, you know, the effect that that, that their criminal activities have on you. Ken, you rode with evil, and I'm sure most of the time you weren't uh, Dr. Croak trying to figure out why these people were evil. But this, I know, occurred to you. You talk about it a little bit in the book. What drives these people to, to, to behave with such appalling violence? So I, I think there's a few and I use and, and that's not a pun, of course, because they're riding rather than driving. <laughs> Right. Well, at times, at times they'll drive, but um, for the most part, they will, um, you know, they will be on the motorcycles, but they, um, I think there's a few different factors um, that play into that. Some are, they just want that outlaw, that criminal um, life where there's no rules. And, and basically the only rules that a lot of these people follow were the internal club rules. And they, they viewed the rest of society and they would often refer to it as civilians. And they would say, you know, their thoughts, their beliefs, their lives don't matter. It only matters what's happening within this organization. Then I think there's another subset where their own personal lives are so insignificant and so worthless or without purpose that they feel that if they join this organization and they become part of it, it gives them an identity. Um, and there is a part of this, and I talk about it in the book, there is a part to this where you know, we would go into bars, you know, sometimes it was pagan bars, but sometimes we'd go into other bars and the whole place, there'll be a hush that comes over the group. And, it, and then also in there, there's people who are attracted to them, you know, women, um, but also men will, will approach them and want to talk to them and befriend them. And so it gives some of these people who maybe who uh, on their own are not going to, nobody's even going to look at them twice. Whereas if, they're wearing colors and they're part of this group that they may get a recognition or interaction that they wouldn't normally get in their lives. Ken, you're an undercover cop. Um, uh, did you ever fear you'd suffer from Stockholm syndrome that you'd fall in the, the Patty Hearst trap of, of beginning to think of yourself as a, as a, as a motorbike outlaw? So it's, it's a great question and, and I'm asked it often, but so ATF has a lot of um, standards in place because in the past there's been issues like that that have happened um, where folks have um, gone over to the dark side, danced on the dark side and, and had a hard time coming back. Um, it's very infrequent, but it, it is real. Um, but you are you're evaluated um, before the investigation ever starts. Um, by psychologists and, and you are benchmarked during the course of the investigation to see if there are any tendencies or, or indicators that you could be becoming sympathetic to that lifestyle of that world. And so they do keep pretty tight tabs as tight as they can. 
So it's not like somebody just sets you free for two years and says, hey, go be an outlaw and we'll see you back here two years from today. Um, they keep pretty tight tabs. And if they see something that's not going right, they're going to pull you out. Here we have some some photos, as I said, of, of you, Ken, undercover. Do you still like some of those people? Do you feel that some of the guys you 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 rode with aren't as bad as the others, that they're actually reasonably decent human beings and capable of salvation in a different circumstance? So you, you, there's a lot in there. You said, do I like um, some of them and, and do I see a value in some of them? There's, I, I was never worried about... Um, you know, befriending or um, becoming emotionally connected to to any of them. I, I this is a job. I was in there doing a job. I acted a role. Um, there it's was an some... insane job, though, Ken. It's not like a, you know. I mean, most people would. It's not. It's beyond the job. I mean, I'm not saying it isn't a job. You're obviously doing it to be paid and look after your family. But it's it's very unusual. Um, yeah. No. Granted, but there's a. Um, there's like, I will say this, I liked, I disliked some more than others. Um, there were a few that I felt were in this um, for the wrong reasons, not that there's any right reasons, um, but there were some I disliked immensely. And my focus was, I just have to get through this investigation and and take these people off, off the street. But you asked a question earlier on that um, is a valid one is, you know, do you feel like you saved lives? And I think that's, you know, dramatic. But I do I feel like I affected lives? Um, yeah, I do. There were people um, during this investigation that I interacted with where I was able to change events. Um, I'll give you two really quick examples. One was a kind of a hangaround who is around the clubhouse and tattoo shop um, who, when I was prospecting, had approached me and said, hey, when you become a patch member, would you sponsor me? And, and I told him, and he was a decent kid from a decent family. He, he had a lot going on in a college degree. He was just enamored. He was young and he was enamored with these folks. And I told him, not only will I not sponsor you, I will do everything in my power to make sure that nobody sponsors you and that you're not welcome in here. And then in a different um, time, there was a tattoo artist um, who was actually looking to get mentored by the, the chapter president on because there's an artist and then there's tattoo and, and transferring that art to skin is different so he was mentoring her how to do that and, and a couple of um the pagans um, she was a beautiful woman and, and a couple of pagans had really gotten focused on her and particularly one of them hogman um who had a history of violence and, and sexual violence um and he had talked about you know raping her and and i told him i said hey you know trying to talk about and also gauge whether he was really serious about it, saying that, you know, you're going to bring heat on to the chapter and all these other things. And as soon as it became clear to me that that this was what he was intended to do and that I didn't have control over stopping him, because I don't know that I would have ever known that he was when he was going to do it. Um, I had approached her and I never came out of rule. But what I said to her is, don't ask a lot of questions. And if you tell them I told you this, you could put me in a really bad spot. But you need to leave here tonight and never come back. Um, you're at great risk and there's some things that are going to happen to you, people who are focused on you. And you should know by the way certain people are looking at you that I'm not joking. And she left that night and never did come back. Um, so those are just two examples that like those are opportunities you had to affect lives and, and it would be hard to say that you didn't affect those lives. I'm speaking with Ken Croak, uh, the author with Dave Wedge, um, New York Times writer of Riding with Evil, taking down the notorious pagan motorcycle gang, the story of his 
two-year undercover operation to bring down this notorious motorcycle gang. I'm going to take a short break, uh, Ken. Uh, and after the, the break, I want to talk more broadly about the ATF. I also want to talk about your personal circumstances, your family. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Ken Croak, the author of Riding with Evil. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Ken Croak, the author of Writing with Evil. Uh, Ken is an undercover or was an undercover ATF officer who uncovered the pagan motorcycle gang. Ken is speaking to us from somewhere on the East Coast, doesn't want to reveal exactly where. Ken, once you're an undercover cop, you're always one, right? You can never really reveal yourself. That must be one of the more challenging elements of this life that you've chosen. No, that's true. And, um, you know, there are times where, um, you, you know, you'll do interviews and you're sil silhouetted out, but you basically try to keep a low profile, try to keep your image. Why the book? I mean, isn't that asking for trouble? I mean, God knows there may be members of the gang watching this who figure out a way to track you down. Well, you know, there's a couple of reasons. One, A, I'm not doing undercover work anymore. So, um, that's number one. Number two, I, I think it's important that, um, folks, know the amount of work that goes into this and that this type of work is necessary in order to keep these organizations in check. You know, are you going to be able to eliminate an organization? Probably not. Um, not the bigger organizations, but can you help keep it in check? Um, you know, th there has to be efforts or else it'll just be, it, it's like a weed. It'll just grow out of control. Ken, the personal dimension of the book is included. Um, you, you, you are a married man with children. It must have been a very hard decision to make, particularly because I assume your family had no idea what you were doing. Well, you know, it, it was, but it's also, and I go back to what I said at the beginning, is the intent was never for me to do the long-term undercover to start. And then 
as you go along in this, there's no, there's no, again, there's no contract that says, Hey, I'm going to do this for two years. It, you know, it, oftentimes these things start out and they only go a month or two, or it could go a week a day. You just never know because, you know, the, the organization has some say in that. And um, oftentimes you, you're not fortunate enough to make it two years uh, because there's a lot of things that are out of your control that could end it very quickly. If, if the plan was, Hey, we're going to go down the street and we're going to murder this person. And there's not a way you can prevent that or stop it then you're going to have to come out of roll and prevent that from happening. So, um, so yeah, so there, there is no guarantee. And so, you know, for the family, it wasn't like, Hey, I'll see you in two years. It was like, Oh, I don't expect it to go that much longer. And, in, in, in you know, it, it, in the end, it, it ended up being two years, but again, nobody sat back knowing that up front. Did your wife know what you were doing? Yes. My wife um, is an ATF agent as well. And um she knew, which which was a positive because uh, in a negative, yeah. I guess, because she knew and understood. And, and it was also a sounding board for me at times. Um, but then again, she knew and she knew the risks. And were you able to communicate when you were on the road with your family or with friends and loved ones? So generally, you know, when with the gang, um, the answer would be no. Um, but there were times, you know, um, part of my backstory was that I poached lobsters um, so that I would be out on boats poaching lobsters, which gave me a, 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 an opportunity to get away and not be tracked. And um, oftentimes I was able to sneak away and, and see my family. Um, and there were other times that, you know, had brief, you know, opportunities uh, too. But tough part about that, and, and my family would, would tell you the same, is even when you were able to do that, you were still a, a big part of you, you were still engaged in what was happening in the undercover role. It's hard to come out of it and, it, and you had to respond. And oftentimes things would happen where I'd have to go right back as opposed to if I thought I could spend two days with my family, it, it oftentimes didn't work out that way. Ken, the idea, perhaps the drama or even the, the romance of the undercover officer um, is represented very often and richly in Hollywood movies in particular. Uh, you're, a, you're a real life version of a fiction of, of what most people imagine is a fictional character. Do films do a good job of, of this sort of thing or, or, or novels or, 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 or is it really hard for a, a fiction writer or a film, uh, a fiction filmmaker to grasp what it's like to be an undercover officer? I, I don't, I don't, I think they glamorize it um, to a degree and I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them glamorize it. Like you're out there having fun. There is nothing fun or glamorous about this type of work. Um, and, and really the biggest part of it, the most challenging part of it is the unknown. Any Every day I would get up and I would think, this is how my day is going to go. And almost every single time, usually within the first hour, the day went in a different direction. And those oftentimes are critical decisions, sometimes life and death decisions that have to happen. And you just never know where they're coming from. You never knew what this group was going to do. You don't know if they were just going to hang out and drink beers and, and, you know, talk it up or they were going to go out and kill somebody or they were going to go out and move a large shipment of you know drugs or what, whatever it was. You just never knew. And you always had to have your guard up and you had to think really fast because you'd all of a sudden, and, you know, I talk about it in the book, all of a sudden, you know, we went to church, which is, you know, where they do a lot of their, their criminal planning. And we got orders that we were going to go take somebody out. And so like, okay, well, I can't let that happen. So coming up with ways to stop those things. And that was supposed to just be an ordinary day. So that's the toughest part is you are constantly on edge, constantly. Your mind's going a million miles a minute every single minute to try to stay one step ahead of what they're doing.
did you or do, did you have a boss? I mean, did you have to, if, for example, you were going to put an end to the activity, if they were about to murder someone and you were going to act to stop that, did you need someone else's permission or did you have the authority to do exactly what you thought was appropriate in the circumstances? So not only do you have the authority, you have the obligation. Um, if, if I'm in role and they plan to go kill somebody, I cannot allow that to happen. And that's the stress of it. And that's the, you know, there's no checking in with the boss. You'd have to react. You would try to get word to a cover team, but oftentimes, you know, it, it would be near impossible to communicate, um, with them. And, and going back to, you know, your last point about the, the stresses of this, um, you know, I talked about this in the book, you know, we, we're simply at church having a church session talking about some criminal activity, but nothing that was, you know, earth shattering. I leave, they give me the documents to go burn in the, in the grill afterwards. And one of, one of the members follows me out. And, and then uh, the president, the vice president, I mean, I'm sorry, the president and the sergeant arms call me back in, into the um, residence. And as I walk in, I turn the corner and there's Hogman with a shotgun pointed at my head. And I realized that the guy who walked out behind me is standing me with a handgun right behind, so close that I could feel his breath in my, the back of my neck. And it, and, they hand me this thing to read, and it's basically saying that you're uh, uh, a uh, rat, an informant. And so, you know, I, that's not how my day started that day. That that day, I thought we were just going to simply have church, and it was going to be a very easy day. And now, all of a sudden, I, I have this sociopath pointing a shotgun at my head. So you just never knew, you know, what was going to unfold. I don't want to give away the full story because I want people to, to read your book, Ken, uh, Writing with Evil. But was there a moment where... Uh, you had some satisfaction in them understanding you weren't who they thought you were? Yeah, I, you know, the very end, um, for the few who were truthful, because, you you know, in this, this isn't unique to the pagans. This was across my entire career. Whenever the game was up, whenever they knew that I was an undercover agent, um, everyone would be like, I knew he was. I knew he was an agent. But it'd be like, wait, you sold me a bomb or you sold me a machine gun. Like, why would you do that if you knew I was an agent? So, it's always a defense mechanism, but there was one uh, individual who had sold me a uh, Hellboy who had sold me a bunch of methamphetamine. And when he was arrested and told that, so Slam was my club name, that Slam was a cop, he refused to believe it. A absolutely would refuse to believe it. They talked to him. They were trying to get him to understand that you all these this meth and, and guns were you were dealing with a cop. Um, he just he wouldn't believe it. So um, so there was some there, and there, there was. For me, looking forward, like particularly to the individuals that I really couldn't say that were just despicable human beings that I always had in my mind and would say it over in time, their days going to come. And this, the stuff that I was dealing with or putting up with, it was like, they're going to get theirs. You just got to be patient and see this thing through. Ken, you mentioned church, which was their metaphor for planning stuff. Are you a religious man? Do you think one needs to have some belief in God of some sort to do the kind of work you did? You know, I am religious, but I also believe to each their own. You know, I, th I think people who find comfort in that should should exercise it. And those who don't, don't. Um, I do think that, you know, whether you look at it as, you know, divine intervention or luck. And I say it many times in the book, there is dumb luck that plays into this. And you, you asked, like, you know, how long was this going to go? You never knew. And there were simple incidents. Um, and, and I mentioned one of these in the book, where we were out on a big run. There was a, there was a whole pack of us and we had gotten back to the president's house and he had sent myself and the, um, 
vice president. And at the time I was an officer in the club. So I was a sergeant at arms, so the second highest ranking. And he had sent us out to pick something up. And so the, the highest ranking person in a run rides front left. So I pull out of the driveway front left and the vice president pulls out and he pulls around around me to get to the front left. We have and a vice president, like a VP, not like a VP in a corporation. Well, he is. But so the difference with the pagans is the president is in he's the head of that chapter. The sergeant arms is the number two. If the right. president goes to jail or is killed, then the vice president actually gets activated and is raised up. But when, right. the, when the president's still alive, he doesn't have status. So we pull out and he pulls around me and he's riding front left and we, we go down the street and we don't make it a quarter mile. We turn a corner and he gets splattered by a minivan um, and he ends up coding out. They bring him back to life. But that should have been me. I was the one who was supposed to be riding front left. I was riding front left for a, a less than a minute and he pulled around me. So some of that stuff, people are like, oh, that's amazing. I'm like, it's dumb luck. There's no skill to that. That's just somebody was looking out for you at that moment. What's your feeling, Ken? I, you're a former uh, officer, ATF officer, about the limits of undercover operations. Uh, Wikipedia is full of ATF fictional sting operations. I was reading this morning about uh, a USA Today investigation that showed in, in 2013 that showed over a thousand individuals had been incarcerated for lengthy periods since 2011 for such fake crimes. A lot of that is, of course, conspiracy theory. Given your experience in this, um, are there limits to undercover operations? Should the ATF and other organizations be careful in what they do and don't do? Well, I think I think absolutely 100%. You should always be careful in what you do and don't do. And, and I mean, what you choose to investigate as an undercover officer. Yeah, there's limited resources, right? So you should be focused on what's the worst of the worst. I will tell you, you know, in, in conspiracy theory, I think is a good one. Um, you know, what you were just referring to, um, you know, don't believe everything you read. So these are, um, you know, the, these particular things, these home invasions, these are groups that are predisposed and are doing home invasions. Very difficult to catch somebody doing it in the act. And so when you identify these groups and who they are, and then you lure them into a um, fake home invasion, um, when they're acting on that, they're bringing guns, they're showing up to do these things. And then you are arresting them before they have the opportunity to do it. Um, that's not making things up. That's a group that was predisposed that has a history of doing robberies of this type. They show up with weapons to do a robbery on a particular day. So it's hard to say that that's an entrapment, in my opinion. In, a, in an odd kind of way, Ken, I mean, you were a formal undercover officer, but a lot of people are undercover almost by accident. There was an interesting story uh, in February, Valentine's Day, your old organization, ATF, urging people, urging exes, a, a, a Valentine surprise by turning them in. It was a tweet uh, uh, from the ATF HQ. Valentine's Day can still be fun even if you broke up. Do you have information about a former or current partner involved in illegal gun activity? Are there limits about what we as citizens should and shouldn't do in terms of turning people in. So not familiar. That was after my time um, of leaving. No, and I'm not blaming you for that. I'm yeah, just yeah, curious no. your take. No, but I think I think you know certainly you encourage folks who are aware of criminal activity, uh, particularly criminal activity you know um, with use of firearms in in violence. 
I'm sure you should come forward because you don't know what that prevention may stop. You don't know if it could be a shooting or multiple shootings. Um, and so, um, you know, there's, there's that fine line, right? You know, it's, it's, I mean, this criminal activity that happens all the time. And, and, and I'll give you a perfect example, you know, during this investigation, there were things that I saw that technically were breaking the law. People were never charged for it. They were lesser crimes. There were bigger crimes. You know, the, the crimes that we charged in this were murder, murder, conspiracy, Rico, like those types of things. We, if, if somebody stole a spark plug off a bike, they, they weren't being charged with it. So I think there is that kind of balance. Finally, Ken, I got to ask this. You'll probably tell me it's a stupid question, but my questions are always fairly stupid. Uh, the, the, the photos are of men with beards who you imagine are in biker gangs. Um, and then when you look at the photos of January 6th, it's a similar group of men with beards looking very violent, sometimes behaving in a, in a violent way, the Proud Boys, for example. Did you talk politics with any of these people? Is there some sort of connection between right-wing extremism, particularly racist extremism, and these motorbike gangs, at least in your experience? There, there's an underlying white supremacist current with the gangs, at least when I was in the gang. And um, they, you know, a lot of their beliefs tie back to white supremacy. And it, and it is a common theme, you know, Again, not pushed or spoken by all, um, but it's there. And certain things within the gang, you know, um, reflect on that certain, um, you know, uh, patches on their colors or there'll be propaganda that will be handed out at different events that may um, be white supremacist in nature. Um, and then there's others that you don't have, you don't sense any of that. And there's even exceptions to it. I mean, one of the Mother Club members when I was in was... Um, was Puerto Rican with a heavy Puerto Rican accent. So there were, there were exceptions to it as well. So I saw kind of both sides. Well, it's a quite an achievement. I think usually books are achievements, but your achievement, Ken, was doing what you did. I think the book is probably fairly easy compared to, to what you did. Uh, I got to put the joke in. I'm sure you've heard it a million times. Ken Croak did not croak, which is why we have him on the show today. He's the author of Riding with Evil, Taking Down the Notorious Pagan Motorcycle Gang, the true story of an amazing undercover operation. Congratulations, Ken, on the undercover operation, firstly. Secondly, on, of course, the book, um, which you wrote in association with the appropriately named Dave Wedge. Uh, what else should people be reading, Ken? I'm sure you didn't have much time for reading when you were on the road, but are you a book guy? What, what, what do you enjoy in addition to your own book, Writing with Evil? You know, I've, I, uh, I am. And, in, 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 you know, based on some consulting work that I, I do, I, I recently, and this is going to sound a little weird, so I'm going to give you like two different sides. One was a learning type book, which was uh, one written by Dr. Mike Gellis um, dealing with insider threat. And I found that fascinating, um, you know, the different vulnerabilities for organizations. And then I always try to cross that between criminal and in, in the real world. And um, a second book that is, it's an old classic, um, but I read it not that all that long ago from Stephen King, which was uh, Night Shift, which is, I don't know if you ever had an opportunity to read it, but it is. No, uh, I haven't. It's, it's like a bunch of his short stories that actually turned into, 
bigger stories or bigger movies. But it was great. Like you could read a, a story. It's like 20 pages and then you go to the next one or you go to sleep and pick it up the next day. So it was. Uh, yeah. And in association with your book, we had um, John Douglas on the show a couple of months ago when a killer calls. John um, uh, was a, an, a very famous uh, FBI uh, detective who, uh, who who, re, who, who followed, who, who uncovered serial killers. It's an interesting thing to read in parallel with your book. Well, congratulations, as they said, Ken, on the book. And finally, and I'm asking everyone this, but you're probably as well positioned as anyone, Ken Croak, the author of Riding with Evil. Uh, who runs the world, Ken? Who's in control these days? Honestly, Andrew, it's you. You have the, you have the power of the media, and, and you're getting your message out there. So you got my vote. 